Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss literary practices and liturgical resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. It is my distinct pleasure to be here today with Matt Emerson, the Dickinson Associate Professor of Religion and the Program Director for the Master of Arts at Oklahoma Baptist University. How are you doing, Matt? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Travis. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm glad that we were finally able to do this. I know we had chatted a little bit last year, um, or earlier this year, maybe. Uh, would have been this time last year, right? Because it was near Reformation Day. That's right. That's yeah, I'm what... sorry it's taking us so long to get on the on the schedule. Oh, no, man, I'm, I'm glad it worked out. Um, and, and listeners might notice that it's been a little while since we've actually had a podcast episode. Um, we had a brief uh, siesta at the end of the summer, which was nice. I actually just completed my Master of Divinity. For those of you who uh, are, are wondering uh, whether or not you should listen to me, now you know that you shouldn't. Um, and just began Ph.D. studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, always repping MBTS, but really glad to talk to a fellow uh, Midwest-ish Baptist guy. Is Oklahoma considered the Midwest? I I think that the jury's out on how Mm. we should designate Oklahoma. I've heard greater Southwest, I've heard Midwest, I've heard lots of things. Right. A lot of people here think we're in the South, so who knows? Just not Texas, right? That's right. That's, that's right. the one definitely thing that you're not definitely Texas. not is Texas, um, and I am personally glad for that. And there goes half the audience just right in then and there. Um, so now <laughs> that the Texans are gone, we can get to something good. Um, no, this is this is great, man. I'm excited to talk about this. Something that um, kind of a weak area for me, but always a point of interest. And so I definitely wanted to, to get on this thinking. Largely, and we'll kind of break this into segments, but thinking largely about uh, historical theology, how does tradition, how does the just deposit that we have of scholarly work throughout the course of the church's history affect our exegesis? We want to be good exegetes. We want to come. We want to think first century or whatever century BC background and get into the original language. But you are apparently telling us we also need to listen to people who came a little bit before us on this trip. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think that just like with historical context, historical background, biblical languages, uh, what we're doing when we listen to the voices of the past about interpretation and theology is not saying that they're masters over the biblical text, but that they are their their aids, their their guides even to help us understand it. And I don't mean that in the sense that they're on par with the authority of scripture or anything like that. Uh I'm a firm believer in Sola Scriptura. But it, it you know, studying with voices of the past is just very simply a recognition that you don't arrive at reading the Bible in a vacuum. You there there are many Christians that have gone before you, uh that have passed the faith on two generations before you and that have given the generation that you're in, the ability to receive that faith that's been passed down. And so it's not its not uh, something where when we listen to other people, we're saying they're masters over the text or that their authority is equal to that of Scripture. We're just saying we're, we're not on an island reading the Bible. We're reading this with the rest of the church together, and we're helping each other along. And so that's really, um, that, that's really my attitude when I'm listening to voices from the past. Yeah, sure. No. And I mean, I, I'm even just thinking about interacting with resources that are trying to get at that first century or whatever BC century mm-hmm. background. I mean, we are wise enough to ask them 
Mm. What should I be looking for in this text? What am I missing as a 21st century uh, Westerner? If if you're a Westerner, 21st century anywhere, there's going to be this massive gap. But we are also saying, okay, but I'm free to take it or leave it. I'm free to critique it, but I would be foolish to ignore it. And so I appreciate your emphasis on that. so I want to I want to start with maybe maybe just a bit of a case study, maybe not getting super into the details here. We had actually covered in one of our very first podcast episodes, uh, just thinking exegetically about the descent of Christ into hell. Mm-hmm. And you have been working on this for a while now. I think that's actually how how we got connected. Is you had seen something you were working on this, you had seen something uh, Todd Scasewater and I were doing, just a brief talk about the descent. And you have gone and done something a little bit more than a podcast episode, right? You, you're working on a book coming out next yeah. fall, IVP Academic. Uh, tell us a little bit about that project and how what that has to do with exegeting with the great tradition. Yeah, that's right. So I, I came across y'all's podcast almost towards the end of writing this book. So as you mentioned, it's... And then you subsequently followed. rewrote it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, I, I did order um, Todd's dissertation and, and a few other things as a result of that. So it was really helpful to hear the podcast episode. And if your listeners haven't listened to that, I would really encourage them to do so because it's a great episode. But yeah, I was at the tail end of writing this book, and I've been writing it since uh, probably fall of 2015, I think, it's with IVP Academic, hopefully out fall 2019. And the impetus for the book came out of actually another project. I had previously written an essay on the doctrine of eternal generation. So in that essay, I work through the hermeneutical rationale that the early church had for arguing for the doctrine of eternal generation from texts like Proverbs 8, texts like John 5, other texts throughout Scripture, uh, including just patterns uh, of names of the three persons of God. And I contrasted that hermeneutical rationale with with modern uh, theological and exegetical rationale for rejecting the doctrine of eternal generation. And in, in writing that essay, one of the things that came out was that, you know, this kind of hermeneutical difference between the early church and the modern church leads to cutting out clauses from the creeds. And so I thought to myself, you know, how else is this happening? What what other clauses are we cutting out today out of the the three ecumenical creeds based on this kind of uh, uh, exegetical difference or hermeneutical difference, really? Uh, between the early church and today, and so that led me to the descent clause. And, and there were some other personal things uh, that happened that brought interest for me for the descent. You know, I, I was started at that point reading through the Book of Common Prayer regularly, and some of the prayers during Easter are about the descent. And I just thought, wow, this you know this doctrine is not one we talk about a lot today in evangelicalism. And so, personally and professionally, I got I became interested in the descent pitched a book. Uh, by the m- grace of God, it was accepted uh, as a contract, and so started writing in earnest uh, over three years ago. And so uh, I've just turned it in two months ago, which was uh, a Amen. big sigh of relief. Glad to have it finished, but that's kind of the impetus for the project. Right, right. So if you would just a little bit more, you're talking about a hermeneutical difference 
you first notice when it comes to eternal generation and, and thinking along biblical studies lines, right? My, my yep. thing with, you know, I'm immediately thinking eternal generation. Okay, monogenes, what, is this one and only? Is this only begotten? And that's where my mind's going thinking, okay, that's the important question to answer. And you're telling mm-hmm. me there may be just a little bit more to it than one word study. That's right. So with eternal generation, you, you know, people will go to monogenes or to, you know, uh, Proverbs 8, and they'll say, well, my exegesis of this passage, and, and to be fair, it's not that individualistic, my exegesis in concert with uh, kind of the, uh, the the basic conclusion of my field is that this word or this text don't teach the doctrine of eternal generation. And in, in writing this essay on eternal generation, what I realized is that the, the early church had a number of theological and hermeneutical assumptions that guided the way they interpreted individual texts. So they weren't, they weren't approaching individual texts in virtual isolation from other texts. They were reading individual texts with the whole of Scripture. They were reading individual texts with the rule of faith. Uh, they were reading individual texts in light of uh, the, the the metaphysical assumption, really, that Christ stands at the center of the universe. So there's all kinds of assumptions swirling around how they read individual texts. And you might say at that point, well, you know, isn't it isn't it good that we we approach texts without assumptions? So the idea today is that you need to get rid of your assumptions and, and approach individual texts sort of as a as a blank slate. And one of the one of the recent books that came out, Craig Carter's Interpreting Scripture with a Great Tradition, I haven't been able to read through it carefully yet, but one of the overarching points he makes, I think, is that uh, you, you can't get rid of the methodological foundations for exegesis. You, you can just exchange one set of assumptions for another set. And so the, the difference between the early church and the modern church is not that the modern church is more uh, neutral when— they approach texts, and therefore more quote-unquote objective. What we've done is we've exchanged these metaphysical, theological assumptions about the nature of Scripture, and therefore the nature of individual texts. We exchange those assumptions for what are really, I think, modern and enlightenment-driven assumptions, uh, that, that we need to treat the individual texts sort of from a neutral perspective— we don't need to consider the spiritual in, in the intent of the text. We need to approach it data-driven ways, rationally-driven ways. And, you know, modern exegetes aren't going to say all that up front, but that's just the, that's the world we live in, is, is a world that's based in modernity, that's post-enlightenment, and, and that um, it is not more neutral or objective. It's just coming from a different set of assumptions to a particular text. And so with eternal generation, those were some of the things that were going on. The descent is the same way, right? You can go to 1 Peter 3 and say, hey, 1 Peter 3 doesn't teach that uh, when it says he, he went in the Spirit, that doesn't teach that he went to the place of the dead between his death and resurrection. That teaches like, you know, he was preaching to Noah or something. Well, what, what, what I found when I was reading the early church is that hardly anybody even quoted 1 Peter 3 for the first 200 years or hmm. for the first 100 years of church history in, in articulating the descent clause, they were going to a bunch of other texts. And the way they were reading those other texts was based on a number, again, a number of theological assumptions that aren't unscriptural 
and they're not imported onto the text, but they're they're taken from this sort of larger reading of Scripture. Yeah, so in Matthew 12, verse 40, when he's talking about the sign of Jonah, uh, the early church read that text with a number of theological and hermeneutical assumptions in mind. You know, first of all, as I kind of alluded to earlier with eternal generation, they're reading with the analogy of faith. That is that Scripture interprets Scripture and that Scripture refers to different parts of Scripture. And so, of course, Jesus refers here in uh, Matthew 12 to Jonah 2. But then if you were to go back and read Jonah 2, Jonah is also full of intertextual links to other parts of Scripture. And so they're reading heart of the earth in Matthew 12 alongside of heart of the fish, heart of the abyss, heart of the sea, all of which are parallel in Jonah 2. And in turn, they're reading those quotations, uh, uh, heart of the sea, heart of the earth, heart of the abyss. They're reading all those phrases in conjunction with how they're used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And so, you know, it's it's not as though you can read, if you're reading like the fathers, you can't read texts in isolation from each other. So they're reading that with a hermeneutical assumption of the analogy of faith. They're also reading um, this text with the assumption of the rule of faith, that all Scripture points to Jesus and that it culminates in Jesus. So this three days in the heart of the earth uh, uh, text, you know, is not just a quotation of Jonah 2 for the sake of kind of one-upping the Pharisees. They're reading that text in a way that says, Jesus's death is the culmination of all death in the Bible. And because it's the culmination, the climax of all the death in the Bible, it, and because of who Jesus is and what he does, uh, it, it's a victorious death. And that, that also leads to some theological assumptions that they have, um, some other theological assumptions, namely that uh, texts have to be read in their theological context. So when, when they're reading when they're reading Matthew 12, they've got all kinds of theological conclusions and assumptions that aren't unbiblical. They're, they're just priorly developed biblical theological conclusions about the fact that Jesus is the God-man. He's both God and man. So what does that mean about how he experiences death? Uh, Jesus is a full human being. They're not Apollinarians. They're saying Jesus has a body and a soul. What does that mean with respect to how we read Matthew 12. Well, it means that his body went to the grave, yes, but it means that his soul went to the place of the dead, which they're deriving that kind of language from the rest of the Bible, too. So there's all kinds of uh, other assumptions, other methods that are swirling around exegeting this one particular text. It's not as simple as placing the verbs in all the right spots, placing the prepositions in all the right spots, and then seeing how he's using Jonah 2. It's reading Matthew 12 and Jonah 2 in a complex web of other hermeneutical, theological, and even philosophical assumptions that are, that are playing into how they're reading those texts. And so when you start doing that, you know, to kind of bring it back to the descent clause, when you start doing that and you start reading texts, not just in isolation from each other or not excising creedal clauses just because one text doesn't fit your exegetical criteria for that clause— what you start to realize is that these creedal clauses have a lot more hermeneutical warrant for them than than at first glance, maybe. So, you know, we could, we, you and I could have an entire episode, which I think you did with Todd on First Peter three. Uh, we could have an entire episode on First Peter three, and maybe both of us say, "Well, I just, you know, I don't, I don't think that First Peter three teaches the descent." Um, but that doesn't that doesn't seal the door on the descent clause being a biblical doctrine because there's so much other there's, there's there are so many other assumptions 
exegetical conclusions, methodological conclusions going on elsewhere in Scripture. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think what I'm really appreciating about what I'm hearing here, especially thinking for me, my my experience in this is 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 kind of well that whole you know even thinking just just as recently I guess as medieval hermeneutics, especially thinking early patristic hermeneutics, I just think, oh, that's some kind of weird thing that I'm supposed to respect, but I don't really understand. And what I hear you saying, just your basic description here is uh, not less than good exegesis, but more than good exegesis. That's right. And I want to be really clear, again, just like I was in the beginning, uh, the the, the church fathers, I I don't want anybody to hear me saying that they are importing things into the text. So when I say hermeneutical, theological, methodological, philosophical assumptions, when I use that word assumptions, I don't want anybody to hear that I think it's okay to import something from outside onto the biblical text. When I use the word assumption, I'm saying that they are bringing things from elsewhere in the Bible that are not just exegetical, but they're also theological and hermeneutical to bear on other texts. So a hermeneutical assumption would be the rule of faith, and and that is not an assumption that comes from the outside of the Bible. That's an assumption that comes from inside of the Bible. So Luke 24, uh, John 5, 46, Luke 16, Jesus teaches over and over that the Bible is all about him. And then if we were to read the Old Testament in a way uh, that I think is warranted by the biblical writers themselves, which is to say, if we read it in a way that shows that it's repeating itself over and over again, we get the same sense from the analogia fides, so when I, or the, the analogy of faith. So when I say they're bringing assumptions, I, I, I don't want anybody to hear that they're bringing assumptions from outside onto the biblical text. So they're not eisegeting, in other words, to use common terms today. Uh, they're doing exegesis as rigorously as we want to do exegesis. The difference is that they're bringing different assumptions to the text than sometimes we are. Sure, sure. And I think uh, just what you're saying, too, about First Peter 3, I mean, uh, th- that's an interesting passage to me, preached through First Peter um, at one point in, in kind of small bits, and so had to weed through those various options. And one of the things that just impresses me about its importance is, just as you said, uh, this may not be the the theological point that is encapsulated in this text. This text may not teach the descent into hell. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we can land at different points. That doesn't, I mean, just logically thinking, right, that doesn't necessitate that that point is not made elsewhere, right? And so we can right. have the right doctrine in the wrong text, um, but we better not exclude the doctrine as even a possibility based on, one text. And so I appreciate what you're saying. It sounds in a lot of ways like what a good evangelical theology ought to be based upon, right? Is the whole Bible in light of Christ. And so we're mm-hmm. going to get a little bit more to that, thinking about just the, the telos of good evangelical study of the Bible. Um, but first, I, I want to just hear a little bit more about this book before we talk about uh, another book that you've been working on. Uh, so Hopefully, fall twenty nineteen. That's the thought on this descent book. What yeah. what else is going on here? Just you don't have to give the whole uh, you yeah. know, table of contents or anything. But what else is are we going to find in that book? Yeah, that's a good question because it dovetails with one more point I wanted to make here. Uh, so the first well, the, the first chapter is on how creeds, how we can talk about creeds as having authority 
as evangelicals who confess sola scriptura. So I want to I set the book up by saying just because we confess sola scriptura doesn't mean that creeds can't have any authority whatsoever. And so if they do have some kind of derivative authority, that is, if they derive their authority from their faithfulness to scripture, just like a, a faithful sermon, you know, would derive its authority in your local mm-hmm. church from its faithfulness to scripture, then what does that say about the fact that the, 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 the dissent clause is included in the creed and whether or not we should confess it? And so I spend two chapters moving through first the biblical data and then the historical data. And then, and then the rest of the book is exploring the dissent's relation to other systematic categories. So I have a, uh, a chapter on the dissent in the Trinity, the dissent in Christological anthropology, the dissent in eschatology, and there's, there's a few more. And, you know, one of, the, one of the last pieces to the early church's hermeneutical puzzle is that they also read texts under, in a way that took into consideration their relation to doctrinal conclusions. So, in the, for instance, in the chapter on Christological anthropology, I explore what it would mean for us to confess uh, that Jesus descended into dead if Jesus doesn't have a human soul. And so, you know, there, there's a doctrinal relationship between what we say about a particular text, say Matthew 12, and the doctrinal conclusions it entails. And, and my conclusion in that chapter uh, is basically that if you say that Jesus doesn't have a human soul, so if he doesn't descend to the place of the dead in the sense that his human soul uh, is in the place of the dead, then you have real Christological problems. Mm. Uh, you, have, you have problems with whether or not he exists for three days. Uh, that's the primary problem, but and, and I won't spoil the rest. But you know, there are a lot. There are lots of actual systematic and doctrinal problems that arise out of that. And same is true of doctrine of the Trinity. If you, you know, there are doctrinal problems that arise from ways you conceive of the relationship between the Father and the Son related to the will. So uh, the the fathers were reading particular texts with the whole Bible in mind, with its relation to Jesus as the Bible center, and also in relation to uh, theology proper. Yeah. Man, I'm excited. I'm excited to hear how this goes. It's, it's one of those things that, for me, this is, uh, I don't know if other people think the same. Hopefully they do. But when you take something that uh, it has been kind of obscured, been sort of neglected, especially by me, I've just kind of thought, okay, this seems important. I'm just going to kind of not worry about it. And then to go, here's why this matters for X number of reasons. I, I appreciate that. I enjoy that kind of thing. Excited to see what comes of it after uh, it's finally released next year. And we, we've been already talking a good bit about just in general what it means to interpret alongside the patristics, how to do good exegesis with the great tradition. Uh, and you've got another book coming out actually just right up, right, October 1st, on the Trinity yes. and Theological Method. So that's, I mean, that's even more pressing. This is something else coming up. So you've already kind of charted that path, writing the Descent book, thinking through these things in a lot of ways. What's this new book about? What's this book that's coming out next month going to be like? Yeah, so Keith Whitfield, who's at Southeastern, has edited a volume called uh, Trinitarian Theology, Explorations in Evangelical Method and Application. And the idea, the idea uh, in this particular volume is that we have three different chapters— each of which lays out a different theological method and then uh, also at the same time says, here's what kind of doctrine of the Trinity you arrive at based on this method. 
So the three chapters, uh, one is written by Bruce Ware, one is written by Malcolm Arnell, and the final, the third chapter is written by Luke Stamps and myself. And then we each respond to each other. So there's also, uh, what is that, six responses, I think? Yeah. Uh, and so I'm bad at math. Uh, so, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the Trinity debate that happened a couple of years ago, there, there are, you know, obvious connections there. But most of the book is really how how evangelicals do theology differently. Mm. And so if I could say it this way, I, I think it's fair to say that Bruce's chapter is um, more, well, it, it's, uh, it's attempting to demonstrate our ability to do theology that is faithful to Scripture through a primary, if not almost exclusive, emphasis on exegesis of particular texts. Uh, whereas Luke and I are trying to, uh, you know, put some of the her- hermeneutics of the fathers into play here, and saying, yes, individual texts, absolutely, but also individual texts in light of other texts, individual texts in light of other patterns of scripture that may not even just texts or just patterns, individual texts in light of other doctrinal necessities that are taught by other texts. You know, so uh, we're sort of on either end of that kind of spectrum, both, you know, and then Malcolm Yarnell is, is maybe more in the middle. Like he, he, I think if you could describe his chapter as still trying to build the doctrine from the Bible primarily and almost exclusively, but still showing that it's in line with the way the tradition has talked about it beforehand. So this is a little bit of a mediating position. Um, all three authors clearly confess Sola Scriptura. All three authors want to honor the Bible as the primary uh, and, and exclusively final authority uh, of faith and practice for Christians. But it's, a, you know, it's three different ways of looking at the place of tradition in that task. And I appreciate these kind of conversations, too. It's really easy when you're taking really, really broad streams of uh, exegetes, really, really broad streams of theologians and going, okay, this is what Protestant liberalism does, but this is what evangelicalism does, or this is what fundamentalism does. It's easy to overgeneralize, right? Um, right. And yet, with I mean, there are very clear uh, issues, very clear questions, um, and so they are important for sure, but in a context where uh, more and more evangelical scholars, more and more evangelical, even pastors are uh, growing in their studies, are getting more even specialized sometimes in their studies, getting uh, certainly more well-equipped, I would think. Um, I appreciate getting at these nuances. I think that's important to do is to go, okay, yes, broad strokes, this is what evangelicals do with the Bible and theology. And yet, we really ought to consider within that uh, different options, uh, consider within that sort of, and this is exactly what you've done is, um, so I'm just reiterating here, uh, which is kind of the whole thing that I do on this podcast, um, is just repeat what you said in a different way that's less precise, but uh, it helps me to process. So hopefully somebody out there is getting this too. No, but, that's good. But that, thinking yeah. about, yeah, where these things go, what are the consequences of various um, various methods of theologizing so that we can see this is, this, is, this is where this goes. There are consequences to doing it this way. Um, not necessarily, I don't know if it would be belittling to say, not grave consequences, right? Nobody here is becoming 
you know, a, a heretic outright by any means. Um, however, important conversations to be had. And that's, I mean, that's coming out really quickly. Anything else about this book that you'd like to mention that would just be a, a help to our listeners? No, I think that, well, yes. Okay. So yes, there is something else I want to say. Uh, I said no, I, I said no, but I meant yes. Good, <laughs> good former Californian. Uh, so, you know, I think that I would say two things. Uh, number one is that it's evidence that the difference between, say, somebody who holds to the eternal relations of authority and submission, previously EFS, ESS, and somebody who holds to the more classic doctrine of eternal relations of origin without ERAS, the difference the difference is not the difference is not exegetical; it's methodological, it's hermeneutical. Uh, and I think that reading through this book, I think, makes that plain. So I think that's helpful in, in terms of the Trinity debate. You know, if people are still even thinking about that, much less talking about it <laughs> at this point. Um, I think it's helpful to just demonstrate that the differences here are not exegetical. They're not differences in commitment to Sola Scriptura. All three uh, chapters are committed to Sola Scriptura. All three chapters are committed to exegesis. The difference is methodological. So, you know, I think that's helpful. I, I, I think it matters in terms of moving forward, you know, what, what methods are we going to purport and use? Uh, and then, but, but to say something more positive uh, about all three in terms of our uh, sameness, our similarity, it's that we are all committed to Sola Scriptura. We are all committed to exegesis. We are all Southern Baptists, you know. So uh, there's, a, there's a degree of collegiality that exists in the book that I think is important to maintain as we have these discussions. Like you said, we're not, we're not casting aspersions at one another. We're not trying to cast people out of the kingdom. But we are saying that there are differences here and that they're important, and we need to talk about them. I appreciate you focusing on both the oneness and the threeness of the views in this book. You know, That's I was my... going to let it sit. I was going to let it sit, let the reader understand, but I'm glad you made it plain. I am here to, to exegete your, your comments. That's good. <laughs> um, no, that's great, man. I, I appreciate that. I'm excited for that. Um, yeah, really excited to see what that looks like. I, you know, cause again, there's a part of me that just goes, okay. I mean, I know there's differences here, but can they really be that, that big of a deal. I'd love to, I'd love to read that and get into it. This dovetails really well. You mentioned, you know, just the, the unity there, the similarity there. And yet there is a, a stream even amongst Southern Baptists, but Baptists in general, and maybe evangelicals more generally, if we're, if we're allowed to put Baptists as a subcategory there, I know there's some, some debate there. Uh, you are a part of the center for Baptist renewal. Mm. That's something that I have Kept up with just a little bit. You mentioned Luke Stamps. I know he's involved in that. Um, I had first kind of come across this, I don't know, maybe when I first started looking into seminaries, I had run across somebody who was connected to CBR. Tell us a little bit about the mission of the Center for Baptist Renewal and your role in that, and maybe some of the uh, resources that are provided there. Yeah, so, you know, very broad strokes. uh, Center for Baptist Renewal is trying to help pastors primarily find some of these resources we've been talking about. So, you know, if, <laughs> if you want to figure out where to go to read the early church's interpretation uh, about some of these things, we're trying to help resource mm. Baptist, Baptist pastors primarily, but all, all pastors really, uh, to, to find how the Christian tradition helps you to be a better Baptist, not just a better Christian. Um, you know, 
if I were to formalize that, right, the Center for Baptist Renewal exists to equip leaders to appropriate perspectives and practices of the historic church within the context of their local congregations for the sake of renewing Baptist faith and practice. So both sides of that are important. It's not just that we're trying to renew, that is, recover early church, the early church's intellectual tradition. We're trying to recover early church practice as well, because we think both of those are important. Uh, the literary element of biblical studies and theology isn't divorced from the liturgical element of biblical studies and theology in the early church. Uh, both of those things go hand in hand. And so we, we believe that too. We believe that what we do in a corporate worship service says something about what we believe, and it also helps people to believe uh, rightly. Uh, liturgy orders our thoughts in a bodily mode. So, you know, we're, we're trying to basically be the vehicle that connects modern Baptist pastors to early church thought and practice. We're, we're you know, there's, there's, some, there's some intellectual excavation going on. Luke and I have uh, written 10 of the 11 points of the manifesto. We've explained those. Uh, it's where we're trying to lay some methodological, theological foundations for this kind of work and why it matters. But a lot of our blog posts, a lot of our content is, hey, here are five church fathers that will help you understand what the early church said about X, Y, or Z, or, you know, here's how you can incorporate the Lord's Supper every week, or here's how you can start reciting creeds. Here's why creeds are important. I mean, those are, that's, that's the vast majority of our content right now. Uh, at some point, you know, we want to build that out into journals and maybe conferences and stuff like that. But all of that, whatever comes of it, all of it is at at bottom intended for pastors. We want to help Baptist pastors get connected to the great tradition and still, and, and in doing so, be better Baptists, not just still remain Baptist, but like be, we, we hope that it helps them be better Baptists. We don't want, we don't want people going Anglican because they feel like they have to. We don't people want, we don't want people being, you know, kind of like covert Anglicans in their Baptist church. Neither, <laughs> neither of those things are our goals. We want to, we want to equip Baptist pastors in a particular way to help them be better Baptists. So, uh, you know, Baptists in the 19th, 20th centuries, they did a lot of work to disconnect themselves from the tradition. And, uh, you know, there are certain reasons for that, that, that may have had good motivation, but there are a lot of consequences to that. And so we're trying to help bridge that gap again. I love it, man. Um, I appreciate the work you guys are doing there, obviously contributing to that. You, you mentioned, you know, on a on a level for pastors, just thinking practically, thinking about liturgical resources, as we have already mentioned very early on in this episode, but also writing these books, working on these projects, thinking at a at a higher level, at a scholarly level. So uh, I, I appreciate not divorcing those things, the literary and the liturgical. I enjoy that a lot. I hope that our listeners will connect with Center for Baptist Renewal as well. Um, one one more thing, something that I tend to tend to throw out there to most. Uh, most guys who are on the podcast. Uh, so if you have been listening to the podcast, you knew this was coming and you won't be caught off your guard. If you have not been listening to the podcast, you didn't know this was coming and I am catching you off your guard. What is a, a scripture, a passage of scripture that you have been ruminating on lately? What have you been dwelling on devotionally as of late? Yeah. So in in my daily time with the Lord, I, I use the Book of Common Prayer. And 
you know, one of the things that has stood out to me recently is the Psalms as Christological, but also as the church's prayer book. So both of those things are going on. So as I'm reading through the Psalms, it's amazing how many times that each Psalm points to Jesus, but also prays our prayers that we need to pray to Jesus. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's this idea that Christ is both our head and our brother, that that he went ahead for us on behalf of us, and that he also is with us and, and interceding for us right now at the Father's right hand. And so I, I think just in reading the Psalms particularly, uh, and you know, every day it's a different two or three Psalms, but just over and over again every day it's the same sense that I get, that, that Jesus is for us and he's with us. Mm. It's beautiful, man. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's been good. It's been fun. Eagle.